this week I sent uh, an email uh, to members and regular attenders. Uh, perhaps you received it and maybe forgot or, or, or maybe you didn't receive it, but uh, this is our third week in a, in a series in which I'm going to discuss some rather sensitive things that you may determine are appropriate or not appropriate for your children to hear. I, I promise that it will be PG, but I will be talking about things like sexual immorality, and if you're not comfortable and you want to leave, it really is fine for you to, to, to leave uh, now. Flip Wilson was an African-American comedian with a variety show in the late 60s and early 70s. Time magazine featured him on their cover and called him, quote, TV's first black superstar. True. Now, one of his alter egos regularly appearing on the show was known as Geraldine Jones when Wilson would dress in drag to play the character. Sayings from Geraldine uh, became nationally known, such as, what you see is what you get, and the devil made me do it. In fact, he won a Grammy in 1970 for an album entitled, The Devil Made Me Buy This Dress. I bring that up because this idea, the devil made me do it, actually then infiltrated our national conscience and even the church. Uh, What do I mean? I would suggest that we give way too much credit to the devil in our own sinful choices. It wasn't me. The devil made me do it. As if our own fallenness, our own sinful flesh, is not actually responsible for our actions. There is an evil external power, the devil, who is responsible. He made me do it. Now, to be clear, there is a devil. But the truth is, in our fallen, pre-redeemed state, we were perfectly capable, all on our own, of perpetrating much evil. We deserve the credit. But to paraphrase Rosaria Butterfield, there has been an insidious switch in our culture. We often no longer blame the devil for our sinful choices, but rather, we blame God. How? It goes like this. God made me this way. And so, as I shared a couple of weeks ago, in order to be authentic, in order to be true to myself, to who I actually am, I must live this way. God wants me to. He made me this way, and He wants me to be happy. And so I suggested that we have traded authenticity, defined as being real, raw, true to me, we have traded holiness for authenticity. No longer do we seek God and His Word to be holy, we seek our, listen, we seek our own feelings and desires as the ultimate authority in our lives and then having the audacity to lay it at God's feet as if He is responsible for my feelings and desires. This is a significant, uh, there is a significant biblical challenge to such thinking. It ignores how God did create us on the one hand and the result of our collective rebellion in the fall on the other. 
We ignore that as a result of the fall. We are fallen people, every one of us, born in sin. It's called the doctrine of original sin. And our feelings and desires, listen, are likewise fallen, depraved, and totally untrustworthy. Which means... To follow our natural sinful inclinations is not to be true to ourselves. It is rather to be true to our fallenness. To quote Christopher Wan, who is a professor at Moody and an author, it is not being true to who we are, but how we are. Who we are is created in God's image. All of us, however marred that may be. How we are, all of us, is sinfully fallen. And therein lies the struggle. You understand this is the storyline of the Bible. Creation, fall, redemption, and ultimate consummation. So that ultimately in the consummation, we can be both who we are and how we are supposed to be. So who are we? Let me say it clearly. We are not who we think we are. We are not who we feel we are. Let me say it very clearly. We are not defined by our sexuality. We are who God created us to be, his image bearers, and we should live how God originally created us to live. And again, therein lies the challenge. I mean, who is in control, him or me? What is best for me, his plan or my own? You understand who God created us to be and how we live surrendering to our feelings and and desires as somehow authentic, those things are diametrically Opposed. And yet, in our culture, feelings and desires have trumped spiritual, eternal reality. We are in the third week of a four week series entitled The Elephant in the Room Topics Too Big to Ignore. The the first two weeks were not haphazardly chosen. First was, have we traded holiness for authenticity? And I suggested that we have. And secondly, evangelizing includes proselytizing. That is, everybody is fallen and lost and needs Jesus. I don't care who they are. I don't care what they believe. They need Jesus. This third week, I want to cover the inevitable end of the sexual revolution You see, if you have been paying attention, you would know that our country and culture is in a sexual, confused mess. When we threw off sexual morality in ever-increasing measure over the past 70 years or so, sociologists tell us, we get what we got, such that there is no sexual morality as a foundation in our country, and such immorality has sadly begun to invade church. 
The, the fact is culture often invades the church, changing our thinking and sometimes our convictions. To be clear, I did not select this series to land on this particular topic. I did not choose to address cultural issues to solely address this issue of sexual immorality, but it is a topic of great need. You see, I've read all or most of eight books on the topic, most, most of them this week in preparation for today. One was Al Mohler's We Cannot Be Silent. Another was Ed Shaw, who's a, who was actually a pastor in England, Ed Shaw's Same-Sex Attraction in the Church. And very interestingly, they both uh, point out, because of the landslide of propaganda in our culture, the church has done one of three things. Perhaps you've done one of three things. Some have sided with the culture, decided to, to, to throw in. Others have become unkind and ungodly in their responses to sexual immorality, specifically homosexuality. I want you to know that I have heard what many pastors, pastors have had to say, and I am embarrassed, and they are ungodly. Still others not knowing how to respond because of the weight of the culture's attacks through media, politics, and even the liberal church, their name, that's what they call themselves, the liberal church. The church has unfortunately become silent on the topic, again, not knowing how to respond. And as a result, people in the pews are unprepared to answer the objections to traditional biblical views on marriage, on sexuality, specifically hetero and homosexuality. You must understand that there has been a massive paradigm shift in our culture as it relates to these topics in rather amazingly short order. Sociologists suggest that such a moral paradigm shift should have taken centuries, but it has happened in decades, unprecedented in our lifetimes because of things like social media, the entertainment industry, politics, and again, the liberal church. I can remember in my time here over the last 15 or 20 years, looking at survey after survey, saying one thing 15 or 20 years ago, and today it is completely opposite. So where does that leave us? Frankly, it leaves us out of the mainstream of culture. And we don't like it. As I suggested last week, we don't like being called intolerant, uh, uh, ignorant, racists, bigots. And so we've either caved or we've become silent. And as a result, many are fleeing the church or organized religion because of the unenviable, unenviable position in which we find ourselves. We're in the minority We've always been in the minority. But I would also suggest that such departures from the church often separate true believers from professing believers. See our study in Hebrews. Now, when I use the phrase sexual immorality, I'm not just talking about homosexuality, although I'm going to talk about it, zero in on it, I do believe that it is one of the inevitable ends of throwing off 
morality, denying God or remaking God in our own fallen image. Consider Romans 1, which speaks most clearly to the issue. For the wrath of God, that is God's righteous anger against our sinful rebellion, his righteous anger against our sinful rebellion is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. In our sinful fallenness, we suppress truth so that we can passionately pursue our sin. I've said it this way before. You have beliefs and behaviors, and those have to match. And if they do not match, you will get rid of one. If your beliefs do not match the behavior you want to pursue, you must either change your behavior or change your beliefs. And we as a culture have changed our beliefs. As if the last 2,000 years of church history and clear biblical doctrine is wrong. We suppress it. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. We were created in his image, knowing right from wrong, actually knowing innately that there is a God For God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they, that's we, are without excuse. God has painted a billboard in the sky such that right now we are without excuse. You can deny the existence of God and go against what you know in your heart of hearts to be true. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened, professing to be wise. They became fools. Exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. In other words, we created false, more palatable religions or abandoned religion altogether. Therefore, God gave them over three times. We read that phrase, God gave them over. Now, typically when we think of the wrath of God, which is the subject of this paragraph, When we think of the wrath of God, we think of the cataclysmic end times events described in Revelation when God pours out his unparalleled judgment on the human race. But God's wrath is currently being poured out on us as well. How? God has allowed people to pursue their hell-bent rebellion. He has not restrained sin and allowed us to endure the consequences of our sinful choices. He withdraws his restraining and protective hand, allowing the consequences of sin to to take us to their inevitable, destructive end. If that is not true of our nation, I don't know what is true. Three times we read the words that he handed us over. He gave us over. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. We'll talk about that in a moment. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Frankly, that is homosexuality. And and, and thirdly, verse 28, and just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, (coughs) suppress his truth, deny him, 
God gave them over to a depraved mind. That should break our hearts. Please notice God is not passive. He has actively handed us over to our sin as an act of judgment. It's the same idea as when God handed over the Israelites to their enemies for punishment. Or today when a judge hands a prisoner over to to punishment for his crime. So too God actively hands us over to the punishment and judgment our sin deserves to the terrible cycle of ever increasing sin. He gives us what we want and we get what we got. He gave them over first in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. So so their bodies would be dishonored among them. This is a general giving over to impurity, speaking generally of all kinds of sexual immorality. When we continued to throw off morality, he, he, he gave us over to all kinds of sexual immorality to do that among us, which is not honorable. Pornography, sex before marriage, called fornication, sex outside of marriage, called adultery, sex with multiple partners, etc. On and on the list goes. Please understand this sermon today is suggesting that in our collective rebellion as humanity generally and as a nation specifically, God in judgment has given us over to our sinful, fallen feelings and desires. And now we have the audacity again to say it is God who made us this way. Before they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, we've traded holiness being like God, image bearers for authenticity, being like I want to be. And we've believed the lie and created our own gods, ones who will approve of our sinful choices. Further, we have believed the lie that any religion will work. Further, we've worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, usually the one in the mirror rather than the one who is blessed forever, amen. For this reason, God gave them over, the second giving over, and this is very difficult, to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the women and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men committing indecent acts, that is homosexual acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over a third ominous giving over to a depraved mind, to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness and wickedness and greed and evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips. Do not for a moment think that the judge, this judgment of God in giving us over to our sinful passions is confined to sexual immorality. It is not. Slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil. What an interesting phrase. We invent more evil things to do all of the time. 
disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And look at this last verse. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but give hearty approval to those who practice them. Do you see? Not only have we as a culture passionately pursued sinful activities like sexual immorality and homosexuality, but we give hearty approval to those who practice them in a matter of decades. We are accepting further, we are affirming, and we get what we got And so not only does our culture at large accept and affirm such practices, so also does the so-called church. So so what are we to do? Do do we cave? Do we just give in? Do, Do we become angry and ungodly? Do we remain silent against the onslaught? Again, those approving of such sinful activity have grown to be the vast majority in the last few decades. And it isn't just homosexuality, folks. I can remember when divorce was wrong, can you? When premarital sex was wrong. And yet survey after survey among professing believers, single believers, demonstrate that, hey, it's no big deal. And well into the majority are sexually active. I can remember when pornography was wrong. It was embarrassing. When homosexuality was wrong outside the mainstream against natural God-given function, to quote Paul. But the tide has changed dramatically and now the vast majority of people support such lifestyles and call us homophobic bigots. Now it is clear from the word of God that he opposes such same-sex activity. From the very beginning, we read in Genesis 1 and 2 that he created us in his image. Male and female, he created us. That is who we are. In that creation, this was meant to be completion and complementarity and fullness and companionship and procreation. Look at these, look at those verses. Genesis 1, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Look, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Most gloriously, male and female, he created them. Both male and female, equally created in the image of God, equal dignity and equal worth to complement each other. Look at the creation account of Genesis 1. There is a lot of distinction. There is light and there is darkness. There is land and there is sea. There is sky and there is water. You see, in order, there could not be darkness without light. There could not be land without sea, you see. He created with distinction male and female and then brought them together. In Genesis 2, we have more detail given about the creation of humankind. The man, that is Adam, gave names to all the cattle and to the birds of the sky and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper, helper suitable for him. So the Lord God, I think God did that on purpose, by the way. 
And, the, and so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. Then he took one of the ribs and he closed up the flesh of that, at that place. The Lord God fashioned into a woman the rib which he had taken from the man and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they shall become one flesh, speaking primarily of the sexual union. I do not have the time to go over all of that this morning. Suffice it to say, God's, listen, God's original design was one man to one woman together for life. And yet the church has lost much of that. Jesus quotes this passage as does Paul in the New Testament. Jesus adds, what God has brought together, let no one separate. Further, there are verses that clearly speak against homosexual activity as outside of God's intended creation and order. It was outside of his design. Leviticus 18, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female it is an abomination. Leviticus 20, basically, is put on the screen, says the same thing. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, do you not know that the unrighteous, what unrighteous? He's going to give us a list. And I know we want to zero in on one, but it's a full list. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. I can remember when that was wrong. Sex before marriage, you didn't do it. It's sinful. Nor idolaters, having other gods. Nor adulterers, sex outside of marriage. Nor effeminate. I'm not going to get into that. Nor, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. You can't live in these ways as a lifestyle and expect to go to heaven. Paul says very clearly, is this, if this is the characteristic of your life, you won't go. 1 Timothy 1, realizing the fact that the law is not made for a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals, Sexual immorality and homosexuality and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Jude 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and most of us know what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah, surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, much like Paul just said, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And we ought to be embarrassed by pastors who stand with great vehemence and say, they're going to hell. It ought to break our hearts. It's most of the verses which clearly speak against homosexual practice. But don't miss, the list also includes heterosexual immorality as well. As Al Mohler once said in an interview that I heard, the question is, 
not are you sexually broken. The question is in what way are you sexually broken? Now, objections to what the Bible says about homosexuality abound. And I will not take the time to review all the objections. Some suggest that there are only a few verses about the practice, so it must not be that bad, and yet it is clearly condemned. Further, I agree with many who point, listen, this is important, the Bible is clearly a heterosexual book. The affirmations of godly heterosexual relationships within God-sanctioned marriage throughout the Bible affirm God's original design and plan. And there are only a few verses sprinkled in to say that he's not in favor of, of anything outside of his plan the way he designed it. Others say Jesus never condemned the practice. That's not exactly true. You may have heard that. Jesus never spoke against homosexuality. That's not exactly true. He condemned sexual immorality generally in Mark 7, for example, which would have included all kinds of heterosexual and homosexual sin. Everyone at that time would have understood it. Still others want to try and reinterpret those passages to say something different. That the Bible only speaks against perverted homosexuality. I'm not going to list those ideas in this audience. But, but they say the Bible would affirm monogamous committed homosexuality. One man faithfully committed to one man, for example. The problem is clear exegesis of the passage. Uh, the passages do not allow for that. Even, listen... Even so-called gay Bible scholars understand that. For example, the Dutch scholar Pim Pronk, after ad admitting that many Christians are eager to see homosexuality supported in the Bible, says plainly, in this case, that support is lacking. Wherever homosexuality is mentioned in Scripture, it is condemned. There are others wanting to support the practice, but who acknowledge the same thing, that the Bible speaks against any and all forms of homosexual practice. How then do they get around the prohibitions? How then does the liberal church get around the prohibitions? Very simply, they deny the authority, inspiration, and inerrancy of Scripture. The Bible, they say, is a cultural book bound by the culture of the day, and it was wrong on this issue. I want to be very clear. If there are parts of the Bible that, w that are wrong, I'm done. Because if we cannot trust the word of God, if there are some verses that got it wrong, how can we trust any of it? We have progressed, they say. The writers of Scripture did not understand the complexities of same-sex attraction, etc. And, and perhaps you wonder how those in the liberal church can support the practice. Consider what Timothy Johnson, a well-respected New Testament scholar who supports Christian, I mean, supports homosexuality, writes. Listen, very important. I think it is important to state that we do, in fact, reject the straightforward commands of Scripture. 
and instead, and appeal instead to another authority when we declare that same-sex unions can be good and holy. Do you see what he just said? There are parts of the Bible as, as an authority that we reject and we accept another authority that, that, that trumps the authority of the Bible, that, that is over the authority of the Bible. And what exactly is that authority? We appeal explicitly to the weight of our own experience and the experience thousands of others have witnessed to, which tell us that to claim our own sexual orientation is, in fact, to accept the way in which God has created us. Do you see? The Bible is wrong, and we should authentically pursue our feelings and experiences. After all, this is the way that God made us. It is his design for us. I've even heard it said this way, to be people of integrity. We must live this out. And so our culture says to us, it is time that we understand, we the conservative evangelical church, it is time that we understand that we are behind the times, outdated trusting in an imperfect book and an imperfect religion. So what do we do with all this? What then should be our response? Before I give some concluding thoughts on the matter, allow me briefly to address the T in the LGBTQ Movement that is the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer movement. To be clear, this is way above my pay grade. Generally speaking, let me say for the first time in history, gender is being determined by feelings and desires which we remember are fallen, untrustworthy. For the first time in history, gender is not determined by science, by binary biology and X and Y chromosomes. Biology is who you are, who God made you, male and female. Gender, however, is how you feel. Again, altogether untrustworthy. Such gender confusion used to be considered gender dysphoria, a mental challenge. But now, throwing off all sexual morality, this becomes yet another inevitable end. Going back to the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, it is clear that there are two genders and not many, not fluid. And we are born with an assigned gender consistent with our biology, but confusion reigns in our culture. So I wanted to speak clearly on this topic today. I, I will not dismiss the clear teaching of Scripture, nor will I be silent, nor will I be unkind and ungodly. And again, any way in which I have been, any of my comments have appeared to be unkind or ungodly, I ask you to forgive me. So what do we do with this clearly biblical truth while many are reinterpreting or dismissing it altogether? I have a couple of thoughts. The first I have already broached. How should we treat those caught in the sin of homosexuality? with the same love, dignity, and respect as we treat other sinners. 
You see, they too are created in the image of God. That is who they are. That's how we can and should love them as fellow image bearers. How they are is the same way we all were, caught in sin. And so our approach should be to lovingly confront them, listen, with the truth of the gospel. It is Christ and Christ alone who can change them. Again, we must remember who they are, fellow image bearers, and we must love them. We must remember how they are caught into depravity, dead in trespasses and sin. And yet the gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, uh, redeems and transforms and propels us together toward the consummation. Remember the storyline of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, consummation. Uh, Ours is to see broken sinners redeemed and join us in this community trip to heaven. Shame on us. For, for singling out one group of people as being unworthy of the gospel. That leads to the second and final thought. At the very end of his book, in fact, it's in the third appendix at the very end, last page of the book, what does the Bible really teach about homosexuality? Author and pastor, actually Charlotte pastor, Kevin DeYoung writes what he calls Ten commitments. I said last thought, but I have ten points. (laughs) Ten commitments that we should all make regarding this issue. Number one, we will encourage our leaders to preach through the Bible verse by verse and chapter by chapter that they might teach the whole counsel of God, even the unpopular parts, and avoid riding hobby horses, even popular ones. Number two, we will tell the truth about all sins, including homosexuality, but especially the sins most prevalent in our own communities. What's your sin? You see, it is very easy to point the finger at at sinners who have sin with which we do not struggle. Number three, we will guard the truth of God's word, protect God's people from error, and confront the world when it tries to press us into its mold. Number four, we will call all people to faith in Christ as the only way to the Father and the only way to have eternal life. Number five, we will speak to all people about the good news that Jesus died in our place and rose again so that we might be set free from the curse of the law, saved from the wrath of God, and welcomed into the holy city at the restoration or the consummation of all things. Isn't that what we want? Number six, we will treat all Christians as new creations in Christ, reminding each other that our true identity is not based on sexuality or self-expression, but on our union with Christ. Hallelujah. Number seven, we will extend God's forgiveness to all those who come, in broke, who come in brokenhearted repentance, everyone from homosexual sinners to heterosexual sinners, from the proud to the greedy, from the people pleaser to the self-righteous. Number eight, we will ask forgiveness when we are rude or thoughtless or joke about those who experience same-sex attraction. We will not be ungodly. Number nine, we will strive to be a community that welcomes all those who hate their sin and struggle against it, even when that struggle involves failures and setbacks. 
What's your sin? What setbacks have you had? Number 10, we will seek to love all in our midst regardless of their particular vices or virtues by preaching the Bible, recognizing evidences of God's grace, pointing out behaviors that dishonor the Lord, taking church membership seriously, exercising church discipline, announcing the free offer of the gospel, striving for holiness together and practicing the one another's of Christian discipleship and exulting in Christ above all things. I think those are good commitments.